Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And we are, in fact, continuing our journey into space, or at least the history of space travel. And I know we've talked a lot about space. We're going to be talking more about space for the next few episodes because it's a fascinating topic, and I love looking into it, and there's so much to talk about. The This episode, we're going to uh, focus on the later Apollo missions, and we will also switch over and talk about the development of the Soyuz spacecraft, the Soviet uh, spacecraft that was intended to be a competitor to Apollo and is a workhorse for space travel uh, now. I mean, it's the only spacecraft, spoiler alert, that will actually bring people back and forth between the International Space Station. In upcoming episodes, I'll talk more about launch vehicles, which we frequently will refer to as rockets. And I will also talk about the space shuttle program. And then after that, we will move on to non-space-related topics. I know I talked a lot about it, but I could have gone into even more detail about the various spacecraft and their subsystems and how they all work, but I realized that it would be overkill and I didn't want to go absolutely nuts. So let's pick up where we left off, which was after the return of the Apollo 11 capsule. Now, Apollo 11 wasn't just a phenomenal achievement in science, engineering, astronaut training, although it was definitely all of those things, but it was also effectively the end of the space race that had started when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik into orbit and put that out as the first man-made satellite in Earth orbit. The Soviets had won those early victories, Sputnik being the first one, but also they were the first to put a human into orbit. They were the first to put a woman into space. But the Americans had managed to be the first to dock spacecraft in orbit, and no one else was able to put people on the moon, although the Soviets did try to do that too, and I'll talk more about those efforts later in this episode. Apollo 11 pretty much sealed the deal, and after that success, the space race was effectively over. Symbolically, it would not be over for a few more years. But the Apollo project still had several more missions before it would end. Apollo 11 was not the end of the Apollo program. Apollo 12 was the second mission to have a lunar landing. The crew would deploy tech called the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package, or ALSEP, A-L-S-E-P. This was a collection of geophysical instruments. Apollo 11 had a more modest collection of experiments that they carried. Uh, That one was called the Early Apollo Surface Experiments Package, or ESEP. That one had two official experiments and then two additional experiments that were not officially part of ESEP. This is where I start looking into NASA records and I say, what's the difference between officially being part of something and not officially being part of something but still going along for the ride and being left on the moon? But maybe that's just me getting confused by semantics. NASA on Apollo 11 was mostly focused on landing people on the freaking moon and then getting them back home safely. So science was sort of a secondary priority, right? It was not the highest priority for NASA for that uh, for the Apollo 11 mission. Uh, they had some scientific experiments they wanted to include, but mostly they just wanted to concentrate on getting people on the moon and then getting them back home safely. 
The purpose of ALSEP was to monitor the environment of an, a region close to the Apollo landing site for at least a year after the end of the visit to the moon. Uh, Apollo 17's version of ALSEP was designed to, to uh, operate for two years. And so there, the Apollo 12 one was just the first ALSEP. All of the other following Apollo missions would bring similar packages along. Some of them worked for up to eight years before Mission Control would shut down all remaining ALSEP projects on September 30th, 1977. So some far outlasted their uh, their projected useful lifespan. The ALSEP's history is pretty darn interesting all in its own right. It's, it's just the... The list of experiments is fascinating. The project started way back in March 1963. So they knew that the plan was to go to the moon. Kennedy had made the announcement in 1961. But what could we do once we got there? What kind of data would we try to collect? And that began a long series of discussions to select which experiments would be conducted on the moon's surface. And they had to consider a lot of different factors when they were making these choices, not just what was going to be the most scientifically interesting, that was obviously one of the really important factors, but also what was just going to be practical because the experiments would need to be relatively simple in design because there was no chance of sending out a technician to repair a complicated piece of equipment once the lunar module would lift off the moon. You know, you can't make a service call and have a repairman go to the moon to fix something. They also could not be too heavy both for the purposes of planning out the payload for the launch vehicle, but also how you deploy it, how, how it would, you know, cause the astronauts the... How would they actually take it out of the lunar module, take it to the right site and set it up? If it was too heavy and too complex, although really heavy wasn't the big problem, bulky was the problem. I mean, on the moon, you have one-sixth the Earth's gravity, so it would have to be incredibly heavy to be problematic. But bulky was an issue, and where the weight was distributed was an issue. There were several all-seps where astronauts found it difficult to carry them, not because necessarily the weight, but because there was no convenient way to carry them on the moon's surface. Uh, during those discussions, NASA identified questions that scientists felt we should try to answer with these experiments. So before designing any equipment or, or deciding what technology to send along, they said, well, what ex exactly do we want to learn? And that, that will guide us into designing these experiments. So those questions included stuff like, what is the internal structure of the moon? What is the actual geometric shape of the moon? What is the present inter internal energy regime of the moon? Where, where is energy going is the moon shedding energy? Is it absorbing energy? Was the composition of the lunar surface? Was it made out of cheese? Turns out no. What principal processes were responsible for the present structure of the moon? Why is the moon the way it is? Was the present tectonic pattern and distribution of tectonic activity on the moon? Are there moonquakes? What are the dominant processes of erosion, transport, and deposition of material on the lunar surface? How does this stuff move around? What volatile substances are present on or near the lunar surface? Is there any evidence of organic or proto-organic molecules on the moon? How old is the moon? And what is the history of dynamic interaction between the Earth and the moon? Apollo 11's ESEP contained a passive seismic experiment package, so it would measure essentially moon tremors, 
and it had four seismometers that were powered by two solar panels, and that would dis- that would study any moonquakes or vibrations from meteorite impacts, and it would ultimately record somewhere between 100 and 200 meteorite impacts during the course of its useful lifespan. The second experiment on the ESEP, the official experiment, was a lunar dust detector. That would measure the amount of dust accumulating on the lunar surface and would also monitor damage to solar cells caused by high-energy radiation because the moon does not have the same level of protection from radiation as the Earth does. Lacking an atmosphere, it doesn't absorb as much of that radiation uh, outside of the surface, that is. In addition to the two official ESEP experiments, they did have two other ones I mentioned earlier. Those were a lunar ranging retro reflector, which is a fancy way of saying a very reflective surface. It was actually an array of 100 cubes made of fused silica. And this reflective surface was positioned on the moon so that if you had a sufficiently powerful laser beam and you knew exactly where that reflective surface was, you could aim the laser beam at the surface and have it reflect back to the Earth. And if you did that with a laser and a sensor, so that you fired the laser and then you had a sensor there to detect what the time difference was between firing the laser and picking up the reflection, you could get very precise measurements of how far away the moon was to a degree of accuracy of up to eight centimeters, which is pretty incredible. You would know how close the moon was within eight centimeters. That experiment was operational until June 1981. The solar wind composition experiment was the second non-ESEP experiment deployed by Buzz Aldrin during Apollo 11, and it used a panel of aluminum foil, which was really pretty much the same stuff as what you would use to wrap up leftovers, and that foil panel was meant to collect atomic particles that were emitted by the sun. That experiment wasn't left on the moon, so instead they deployed it, they unfolded it, and set it up, and then left it alone for about an hour or so, and then collected it and stored it in the lunar module, and they brought it back aboard the command service module on the return trip home, And once they landed, they turned over that experiment to a group of scientists from Switzerland. It was the the group of scientists who had actually designed that experiment. The ESEP and the ALSEP packages called the Scientific Equipment Bay aboard the lunar module their home until landing on the moon. This bay is kind of like a trunk in a car in a way. It was designed so it would allow for easy unloading on the moon's surface. So its height was such that the astronauts didn't have to try and bend far down in those big bulky spacesuits to get at things. They could kind of reach in, grab it, and pull it out. The bay also had boom arms that would help offload materials, particularly those bulky ones that might require both astronauts to work together. Remember, the lunar module would have two astronauts in it, and the command module would have the third astronaut still in orbit around the moon. Uh, This was important to have those boom arms because sometimes the lunar module would land in such a way that it wasn't really level on the moon's surface. You might land at the edge of a little dip, or uh, one of the legs of the lunar module might sink a little further into the dust on the surface. So they wanted to make sure they had systems in place to help with the unloading in case the lunar module wasn't perfectly level. The general procedure for deploying the all-set packages was that you would have to find a spot about 100 meters to the west of the lunar module and make sure that you were not in the shadow, the path of the shadow of the lunar module for sunrise, because solar panels would often be part of those experiments. So you needed to have uh, 
uh, unblocked access to sunlight. And you had to find some place that was, you know, fairly level, which was always finding areas on the moon that met these criteria wasn't always easy. The ALSEP aboard Apollo 12 and the ones on each of the Apollo missions uh, following until Apollo 17 included uh, some other pieces of equipment. Uh, central to the experiment was a station that acted as a power source. It was kind of like a, a a little power generator right in the middle, and it had a radioisotope thermoelectric generator. And yep, that means that the experiments were powered by the heat generated by radioactive material undergoing decay. Specifically, they were using plutonium-238 in oxide form. The generator could produce 70 watts of direct current electricity, and all of the generators from Apollo 12 to 17 are on the moon, with the exception of one. The generator for Apollo 13, which was forced to abandon its mission in the wake of an emergency, that generator is somewhere at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. So there, somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, is a radioisotope uh thermoelectric generator with plutonium-238 in it. Now, that meant that all the experiments, and there were many, that these central stations would provide power to actually drew less electricity than what would be needed to power a 75-watt light bulb, which is pretty incredible. Experiments included stuff like what was uh, included in the Apollo 11 package. That that was in many of the other ones as well. But the Apollo 12 seismometer experiment not only detected when the lunar module crashed into the moon upon being jettisoned from the command service module, but found that the moon vibrated or rang like a bell for more than 55 minutes after that impact. So this was done on purpose. They jettisoned the lunar module. Everyone else was aboard the command service module for the return trip home. And it was on a crash course with the moon, and it was specifically done so that they could measure the the seismic activity. So why did it vibrate for so long, for nearly an hour? Well, according to Dr. Ross Taylor, the reason is because the lunar soil is devoid of moisture, which would literally dampen vibrations. Moisture absorbs vibrations. Water absorbs them. In fact, uh, when we talk about the space shuttle program, I'll talk about how water was used specifically for that purpose. So without moisture, the vibrations could continue much longer than they would on Earth. Other experiments would look into stuff like the heat flow of the moon. They found that the interior of the moon is warmer than the surface, so heat flows from the center of the moon out toward the surface and then dissipates in space. Uh, they also had uh, experiments that had uh, magnetometers or magnometers, if you prefer, but that I'm almost certain that's not the right way to say it. Uh, Magneto, they had the X-Man Magneto or or X-Man villain Magneto to study the magnetic field of the moon. They had ion detectors to measure the number and types of ions on the moon, charged particles on the moon. Uh, Mostly those ions were deposited by the solar wind. Other experiments would look for charged particles or cosmic radiation, and the packages on different Apollo missions contained different experiments. Some would be repeated with... uh, follow-up missions. So you might have uh, an experiment that's on Apollo 14 that's also on Apollo 16. Others were unique to their specific mission. When we come back, I'll talk about an experiment aboard the Apollo 17 that gave astronauts a bit of a headache when they were deploying it. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So one experiment that did not quite go as planned was the Lunar Surface Gravimeter. 
aboard the Apollo 17. And scientists at the University of Maryland designed this experiment. And its purpose was to search for evidence of gravity waves. Gravity waves were something that Einstein had predicted in his theories, but no one at that point had found any actual observable evidence of gravity waves. So this device was supposed to look out for that kind of stuff. It was also meant to study the response of the moon to the Earth's tidal pull, and it could also supplement data gathered by the various seismometers that were distributed on the moon's surface. The business end of the experiment, the part that was the, at issue, was a spring balance that was incredibly sensitive, and it had special mass weights attached to it to provide the proper tension on the spring balance. But while designing this particular piece of technology, the team made a mathematical error, and it, the mass was not correct. So it wasn't actually putting enough tension on the spring. The astronauts tried to set the experiment to null when calibrating it, and they so setting it to a, a neutral position, but they found they couldn't get the meter to register a neutral position. Even though they verified the experiment was on a level surface and that the gimbal inside the device could move freely, only then did NASA realize there was a tiny but sufficiently irritating error. The mass weights were 2% lighter than what they needed to be in order for the device to operate properly. Making things worse, the sensor was adjustable, so you could adjust for error, but it would only adjust to correct for an error of up to 1.5%. And the mass of the weights was a 2% error. So it was greater than what the device could allow for. So they started using some other methods. And one of those methods turned out to be what we in the tech business would tend to call percussive maintenance, which means an astronaut hit the experiment to make it work better. Seriously, from a NASA website about this ALSEP experiment, Schmidt, which is a reference to Apollo 17 astronaut Harrison Schmidt, wrapped the exposed top plate on the gimbal, rocked the experiment in all directions, re-leveled the experiment, working the base well against the surface, and verified the sunshade tilt. These actions were taken to free a mass assembly or a sensor beam that was suspected of being caught or bound, but no change was apparent. The problem was at least partly overcome by applying pressure on the beam with the mass-changing mechanism beyond the design point by addition of all included masses so that it contacted the beam. Much valuable EVA time, that's extravehicular activity, about 30 minutes, was spent on the attempt. Which is kind of a polite way of saying they wasted half an hour trying to get this darn thing to work. All of this is to say that the missions after Apollo 11 were meant to further our scientific understanding. Numerous experiments would gather information, some for years after we left the moon. Astronauts would gather samples of the dust and the rocks on the moon and bring them back. They deployed equipment. Starting with Apollo 15, they also got to tool around on the moon's surface with the lunar rover. I could do a full episode just about the lunar rover. The Apollo 15 was the first of Apollo's missions to spend more than just a few hours on the moon's surface. In fact, the whole mission for Apollo 15 lasted about 12 days. The CSM pilot spent nearly as much time in lunar orbit as the entire length of the Apollo 8 mission. That was the first Apollo 8 mission to orbit the moon. Apollo 17, the last of all the missions, launched on December 7, 1972 and returned to Earth on December 19th, 1972. It would be the last time 
so far that any humans would set foot on the moon. Now, when I say the last mission, I do mean the last lunar mission. There was one more Apollo mission that I'll talk about a little bit later. Each of these missions were really important, and I could do a full episode about any single one of them. Now, before I transition to talk about the Soyuz, I thought it'd be good to at least talk a little bit about Apollo 13 and what happened there, because it had the famous malfunction, uh, the the subject of many documentaries and films, including the film Apollo 13. The mission, which carried astronauts John Swigert, uh, Fred Hayes, and James Lovell, had a bumpy start, literally. A few minutes after liftoff, the astronauts felt a little vibration in the command service module. The launch vehicle's center engine shut down two minutes earlier than planned, but the four remaining engines were able to fire uh, for a little bit more than half a minute longer than planned in order to compensate for that early burnout. And the S-4B stage had to propel the spacecraft an extra nine seconds as well. But despite all that, everything else seemed to be going really smoothly. So much so that 46 hours into the mission, so nearly two days into the mission, ground control said that the spacecraft was in such good shape and everything was going so smoothly, it was frankly pretty darn boring. Just a little before the 56th hour of the mission, an oxygen tank in the service module blew up. A second oxygen tank failed. The command module lost electricity, water, and light, and that's when we get the famous phrase, Houston, we've had a problem here, which typically gets paraphrased as Houston, we have a problem. The crew would move into the lunar module. Remember, with these lunar missions, right after going into orbit, the command service module would detach from the S-4B and would rendezvous with the S-4B to dock with the lunar module on the end of the CSM. So you have the lunar module kind of kind of balanced on the end of the CSM for the rest of the journey to the moon. So it was already connected to the CSM. So they had this, this lunar module where the life support systems were still working. But it wasn't ideal to move everyone in there because the lunar module was meant to support two crew members for less than two days. And instead, there would need to be three crew members aboard this lunar module for four days. They also had to cut way back on water consumption because the water was important not just for them to drink, but also to be used as a cooling system for the various systems aboard the the spacecraft. And as a result, because they had to cut so far back on water, they all became severely dehydrated. In fact, collectively, the crew would lose 31 and a half pounds during this mission, almost all of it water weight. So at one point, Lovell had to resort to using the sun as a navigational star. He had to align the attitude of the lunar module according to the directions he received from ground control, which is pretty phenomenal to think about navigating by the stars when you're out in space. The conditions in that spacecraft were admittedly really tough. The temperature sank down to about 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about three degrees Celsius. And no one was sure if the command module would power up properly. And the command module was absolutely necessary because that was the spacecraft that was outfitted for reentry. The heat shielding and everything, that was on the command module, not the lunar module. So they were still connected at this point. There was a lot of condensation inside the command module when it became time for them to to transfer back over. That raised a lot of concerns about possible short circuits when they were powering up the command module. They thought, well, there's a lot of water pooling on the surface. There's probably water underneath the panels as well, which could make uh, a short circuit issue. 
the astronauts were able to jettison the service module from the command module, and they were able to use the lunar module's propulsion system to pull away from the service module to a safe distance so that it wouldn't collide with the rest of the craft. And then before re-entry, they moved back into the command module, strapped themselves in, they jettisoned the lunar module, and they uh, re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. So all of that was amazing. It was phenomenal that they were able to achieve this. The parachute deployed as it was supposed to. They splashed down in the South Pacific Ocean on April 17, 1970. And that the astronauts and ground control were able to solve these critical problems dynamically. They were able to improvise using various systems that were available to them. They didn't have the full suite of capabilities of the spacecraft available. They had to make do. And their challenge was very real and very critical. It could have ended in tragedy. So this is one of the greatest stories of achievement I've ever read about when you're talking about you know, figuring out how to make use of what you've got left in order to to make it out of a terrible situation. So keep in mind, like getting to the moon was an incredible challenge, right? That was insane (laughs) in some ways. And it involved years of careful planning and calculations. Getting the crew of Apollo 13 home in one piece meant that scientists and engineers had to work out creative solutions with limited options in just a couple of days. They didn't have months to plan this out. They had to do it in hours, and they did it. The ultimate cause of the explosion was determined to be a problem with the heaters in the oxygen tanks. Uh, The command module had been upgraded to provide 65 volts of direct current power to these heaters. The older design of the command module had only provided 28 volts, so this was a step up in voltage. But The problem was the thermostatic switches on the heaters had not been modified to accept that higher voltage. They were still designed for the 28 volts. So the operation of the heaters ended up creating an overheating problem, and that ended up affecting the wiring surrounding the heaters, and that in turn degraded the Teflon insulation around the oxygen tanks and made it possible for that explosion to happen. There was one final flight of the Apollo program that was not part of the lunar missions. It didn't get a number like Apollo 17. And that was the Apollo Soyuz mission because it involved a rendezvous and docking with a Soviet Soyuz spacecraft, which happened in 1975. So I figure it's time I take a quick trip over to the USSR to talk about the development and technology of the Soyuz, a spacecraft that we still depend upon decades later. But before I do that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsors. If you've listened to my earlier episodes about the Soviet space program, you know it started with the relatively primitive Vostok spacecraft, which had extremely limited capabilities in space. And then you had the Voshkod spacecraft, which was like a souped-up Vostok And the Vozhkod lacked the carrying capacity to supply a crew of two or three cosmonauts with enough air, water, and food to make a trip to the moon and back feasible. So the Soviet Union needed a new approach. Those earlier spacecraft were really meant to try and get the Soviet Union up into space ahead of the Americans and to do things like simple, relatively simple docking maneuvers. Uh, I, I use the word simple in relative terms because it's actually incredibly complicated. But 
it was more of a display of the principle of docking than any useful <laughs> application of it. Anyway, that was all meant as almost like propaganda or uh, political warfare. But to get to the moon was going to require more than just these quick fixes. Complicating matters, however, was that the lead designer of Soviet spacecraft, Sergei Korolev, had died on January 14, 1966. Korolev was the heart and soul of the Soviet space program. He was very much in charge of design, the lead designer. And he had battled with politicians during much of the space race. He was trying to balance the unrealistic deadlines and the low budgets he was being given by politicians with what he could actually accomplish. He died during a surgical procedure, and his successor, Vasily Mishin, had to pick up the pieces. And there was still a lot of political pressure to get the Soviets to the moon before the Americans. But at this point, the Soviets were kind of getting a little bit behind the Americans, especially with launch vehicles, which I'll talk about in the next episode. Originally, the plan was to create a spacecraft that could consist of uh, three large segments, and each segment would be put into orbit on a different launch vehicle or rocket and then assembled in orbit by cosmonauts. One stage would contain the crew compartment, while the other two would hold the propulsion system and the fuel tankers, but ultimately the Soviets decided that approach was impractical. Obviously, if there was anything that went wrong with any one of those launches, it would mess up the entire thing. So they scaled it back. Originally, they scaled it back as a two-part spacecraft, so it would still need two different launch vehicles. And then ultimately, they just said this also probably wasn't the best idea and decided to go with a single launch vehicle spacecraft design. So it was a spacecraft that would only need one launch to get into space, and that, and that it would just be a complete spacecraft top to bottom. The spacecraft had been uh, updated several times, but in general, here's how it shakes out, because the general design of the Soyuz spacecraft has remained consistent. The details are very, very different, because obviously technology has advanced considerably since the 1960s. The spacecraft is about 23 feet or 7 meters long. Like the Apollo spacecraft, it consists of three modules, right? The Apollo spacecraft has the command module, the service module, and the lunar module. Well, the Soyuz has the orbital module. That one is sort of spherical in shape. It's at one end of the spacecraft. The section, uh, the, the, the spherical section has the docking mechanism, that would allow the Soyuz to dock with other spacecraft or space stations. Uh, the Russians put up a couple of space stations in orbit and also participated with the International Space Station. So this is the part of the spacecraft that would dock with those facilities. It also has the living facilities for orbital phases of missions. Behind the orbital module, so if you had it standing up on end, it would be the next section down, uh, is what is called the descent module. And it's kind of shaped like a bell, and it has a space for three people, and it's used during as ascent, descent, and landing. So going up, coming down, and actually when it lands on the ground. Behind this section is a cylindrical module called the service module, which has propulsion, life support, electrical systems for the spacecraft. All of those are located in that section. The first Soyuz mission with a crew ended tragically. It was supposed to involve two spacecraft. You're supposed to have the Soyuz 1 and the Soyuz 2, and the two spacecraft were meant to dock in orbit. 
And this would have happened in April 1967, about a year after the Gemini 8 docked with an unmanned Agena target vehicle. So while the Americans had already shown a successful orbital rendezvous and docking, this would actually be a uh, an example of two crewed spacecraft, two spacecrafts with people in them docking together. Uh, the docking system aboard the Soyuz relied on an automatic system, so it didn't require pilot input the way the Gemini and Apollo ones did. With the Soyuz 2 grounded uh, because of weather, the Soyuz 1 was to just return to Earth the day after it launched. So the Soyuz 2 never takes off. The Soyuz 1 is in orbit and then is supposed to return the next day. But the parachute for the Soyuz 1 failed to deploy, and cosmonaut Colonel Vladimir Komarov died in the resulting crash. Along with a parachute, the Soyuz capsule also had a solid fuel rocket that was intended to ignite one meter before landing to help with a soft landing, since like the Vozhkod, the Soyuz was meant to land on solid ground, which would make it a little less jarring. Actually, when you watch video, uh, or film, I should say, of the Soyuz landing, or the Vozhkod landing, uh, it looks pretty scary because there's a big flash just before it lands. It looks like it, there's an explosion, but in fact, that's the solid fuel rocket that at the last second is giving just that little bit of, not a little bit, a considerable amount of thrust in order to reduce the impact of landing. Soyuz 2 was uh, an unmanned craft, and Soyuz 3, which had a crew, were then meant to conduct the first automatic docking procedure in orbit in October 1968. The two spacecraft ended up getting really close to each other, but they did not dock. Soyuz 4 and 5 would dock in orbit in January 1969. The Soyuz 5 had a full three cosmonaut crew. The Soyuz 4 only had a pilot named Vladimir Shatilov, and the two craft would dock together, and two crew members from the Soyuz 5 would transfer over to the Soyuz 4, and both spacecraft returned to Earth safely. Now, while the Soviets planned to use the Soyuz to go to the moon, they were going to rely on a very similar strategy to Apollo with a lunar landing module that would put the cosmonauts on the moon and then return them to rendezvous with the Soyuz spacecraft in lunar orbit. The success of the Apollo 11 mission in 1969 effectively made the Soviets cancel those plans because it was going to be very expensive, very difficult. They had not yet completed the design of the lunar module, and it just didn't make sense to keep going after a goal that the Americans had already achieved. But the Soyuz lived on, just not as a spacecraft to take people to the moon. But to take people to orbit? Sure. There was one other Soyuz catastrophe that resulted in the death of an entire crew. This one was was pretty scary and, and, and sad as well. It happened on June 30th, 1971, and it was with the Soyuz 11. The crew had successfully docked with the Salyut 1. The Salyut 1 was the very first space station in Earth orbit. This was also the first successful docking procedure. The Soyuz 10, the mission immediately before Soyuz 11, was supposed to dock with the Salyut 1, but had to abandon the mission after some technical malfunctions had prevented docking. So the crew of the Soyuz 11 successfully docked with the space station. They board the space station. They actually stay on the space station for 23 days. But then they disconnect... Uh, because there was a, 
some technical malfunctions that led to an electrical fire aboard the space station. So for safety, the crew got back aboard their spacecraft, the Soyuz 11. They disconnected from the space station. They piloted the craft to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. Then we're not entirely certain exactly how things went from there. But the capsule landed, parachute deployed, everything went as planned. But when the retrieval crew got to the capsule, they found that all three crew members inside had died. An investigation concluded that a pressure valve at some point during reentry had failed, and that resulted in a loss of cabin pressure, and the crew were not wearing pressurized suits. The Soviets had decided that pressurized suits would not be necessary with the Soyuz, and that tragedy ended up changing the minds of the Soviets. And from that point forward, all Soviet crews were required to wear pressure suits during missions. But because the crew was not wearing them in this one, they died from the rapid depressurization. And I alluded to this earlier, but back in 1975, there was a special joint mission between the United States and the Soviet Union space agencies. The U.S. would send up an Apollo command service module, only given the designation Apollo. Some people in the media would informally refer to it as Apollo 18, but that was not the official designation. In fact, there had been a planned Apollo 18 mission, but that had already been canceled. The Soyuz spacecraft was technically connected to a mission called Soyuz 19 in the Soviet Union. This was the final flight of an Apollo spacecraft, and the docking pilot for the craft was Donald K. Deke Slayton. He was one of the Mercury 7, one of the original astronauts picked for the Mercury program. He was the one who was grounded for health reasons when they found an irregularity in his heartbeat. And he finally got the, uh, the, the clearance to fly again, so he got to go up into space on the final Apollo mission. The Apollo spacecraft was fitted with a special docking mechanism to make it compatible with the Soyuz spacecraft, and the two craft docked on July 17, 1975. The crews were able to meet with each other, they shook hands with one another, and that symbolically brought the space race to an end. Though again, you could argue quite convincingly that the moon landing had effectively done that a few years earlier. Both crews were able to return home safely, uh, although on the return trip home, the Apollo crew ended up being exposed to an oxidizer that's really toxic. It's uh, nitrogen tetroxide. And there was a switch that had been left open when it should have been closed. Um, according to the crew, the crew member who claimed responsibility said he did, he failed to hear the commander call that out on a checklist, and it was his fault that the, the switches were not closed. Uh, all three were able to recover. They spent a couple of weeks in a hospital in Honolulu, so not the worst place in the world, although I guess if you're in a hospital room, it's not like you're really enjoying the surroundings. So... Soyuz was not going to go to the moon, and instead the focus was on the orbital version of the Soyuz, like the 7K OK variation of the craft. There have been a lot of variations of the Soyuz over time. Like I said, there have been a lot of updates, upgrades, variants, but the basic design has remained pretty consistent, just with updated subsystems and materials. For several years after the space shuttle program was shut shuttered in 2011, the Soyuz was the only spacecraft capable of docking with the International Space Station that would still be in service. To this day, it's the only spacecraft that has is allowed to take people to and from the space station. Uh, SpaceX's Dragon 2 capsule will eventually be able to do that, assuming everything continues to go well for that 
program. But for right now, the Soyuz is the only way up or down if you happen to be a human. Today, the SpaceX uh, Dragon capsule is able to dock with the space station, but only for taking stuff up or bringing stuff back down, uh, stuff being non-organic. So we're talking like experiments and things. Uh, SpaceX is still working with NASA to develop a version of that capsule that will be piloted by a crew. Uh, also, the space station has a, uh, a Soyuz spacecraft docked with it all the time that can be used as an emergency lifeboat. So there's an emergency Soyuz capsule attached to the International Space Station. And if there is ever an emergency that requires evacuation, the crew can climb into the Soyuz capsule and detach and head home. Um, NASA and SpaceX do have a contract for up to six crewed flights. Again, crewed as in manned, not you know C-R-E-W-E-D, not C-R-U-D-E. But they have a contract for up to six of those to the space station once that Dragon 2 capsule is cleared for such duties. And then the Soyuz will be just a little less special. The current version of the Soyuz has the designation Soyuz MS. That one entered service in July 2016. It still has the three-module design of its predecessors, so it isn't dramatically different, at least in basic construction. But it does have modern power systems, communication systems, navigation systems, computers, all that kind of thing. Everything has been updated from that uh, perspective. There's also a black box-like system inside of it that records voice and data during descent phases. So if anything does ever go catastrophically wrong, the uh, retrieval crew could have a chance of retrieving the black box and studying the data to find out what happened. And of course, there's no longer a Soviet Union. The Soyuz MS now falls under the jurisdiction of the Russian Federal Space Agency. So that's a big difference from when the Soyuz was first created. And that kind of concludes my overview of the Apollo missions and the Soyuz space, uh, spacecraft. I am still amazed that a spacecraft that was designed uh, in the 1960s is still being used regularly today. Although, granted, it is obviously updated versions of that same spacecraft. So this was a great journey for me. I learned a lot as I looked into this. And in our next episode, we're going to dive into the scary world of rocket science. We're going to talk about these launch vehicles that have been used with various spacecraft. And I'm really going to focus on the launch vehicles for the spacecraft that carried people. I'm not going to look at a whole lot of the, like there were, there've been dozens of launch vehicles, some of which have been used only to put things like satellites and stuff up. I say only, it's still an incredible achievement, uh, but I'm going to focus mainly on the ones that were used to put people up into space. That'll be our next episode. But if you have a suggestion for a future episode, maybe it has nothing to do with space. Send me an email. I've been getting some great messages lately. You guys are killing it. Keep up the great work. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Also, don't forget, we now have a merchandise store. It is at tpublic.com slash techstuff. That's tee.public.com slash techstuff. You can find all sorts of stuff. We're talking about shirts, stickers, phone cases with different designs. Go check out the Tech Stuff logo designs on there, guys. Just imagine you could whip out your smartphone in your protective case with the Tech Stuff logo, and everyone's going to know how cool you are. So check that out. 
Don't forget, you can also get in touch with me on Facebook or Twitter with the handle TechStuffHSW and follow us on Instagram. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 